Welcome to Election R&D from the University of Southern California's Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Welcome to Election R&D. I'm Bob Shrum, the director of the Center for the Political Future. I'm here with my co-director, Mike Murphy, and I want to say a thank you and a shout out to our partners at the Rancho Mirage Writers Festival and to Jamie Kabler. Uh, let me introduce our guests and then we'll move on. Jane Jun is the Associate Chair in Social Sciences and a Professor of Political Science and Gender and Sexuality Studies at USC Dornsife. She's the author of five books on political participation and public opinion in the U.S. and is working on a new book on the gender gap. She's also written a whole raft of research, political research articles that have had a huge influence on the political science profession. Mike Maverick is a co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He's a former political director for the California State Republican Party, a longtime Republican strategist, and an expertise in Latinx voting trends and analysis. He's currently a partner at the public relations firm Grassroots Lab and was a spring 2019 fellow at the Center for the Political Future. Adam Nagurney has been the Los Angeles Bureau Chief of the New York Times. He was the chief political correspondent at the Times from 2002, covering the presidential elections of 2004 and 2008. He too, uh, and we're grateful to him, was a fall 2019 fellow at the Center for the Political Future. And this wasn't going to be my first question, but it is. Adam, where are you? <laughs> I am midway, almost midway between Los Angeles and uh, Las Vegas. I woke up this morning to a request from New York to get to Nevada because it looked like it could be one of the disputed states. So I started driving and then about an hour in, realized A, Nevada is probably not going to be a disputed state. B, the count will be done until this weekend. And C, it looks very possible the election will be resolved tonight uh, in Pennsylvania. So I pulled off in a parking lot in Hesperia, I think, where I am, and have stopped just to do the show with you guys. Thank you very much. So I think I'm going to start off with a question to my co-director, Mike Murphy, who talked a lot about a red mirage coming on election night. Uh, and could you describe that and tell us where you think we are now in terms of the ultimate outcome of this race. Uh, sure, Bob. Uh, thank you. And it's great to see all my, uh, my friends here from our uh, greater USC uh, alumni, uh, uh, the Academy and journalism here to join us. So, and thank you all for tuning in. The red mirage was a term, I believe, coined by somebody in Mike Bloomberg's uh, data firm about the different nature of election results this year due to the pandemic. The pandemic has caused a surge in absentee and early voting uh, compared to standard. Now, the, the, the trend has been for more absentee voting, but not all states treat it equally. There are some states that an antiquated uh, approach where you almost needed to get a letter from your doctor to be able to vote absentee. Now, here in California, we're, we're, we've always been a pioneer in absentee voting, and we have you know, a long history of it in a massive uh, voter file of people who are what are called permanent absentees who vote that way all the time. Same thing in Florida, a lot of other states. So, so some of the states changed their laws 
uh, because of the pandemic, but they're dealing with more absentee ballots than they've normally been used to. And we all know Philadelphia and uh, Pennsylvania uh, is in the news right now for partially that reason. So the Red Mirage was an idea that the first votes reported, the election day votes, were likely to be asymmetrically uh, stronger for Donald Trump than Joe Biden. And there was, excuse me, there was a risk that people would say, wow, 50% of the votes in, Trump's going to win Michigan. And, you know, a panic would break out. And I can tell you from my personal text, that's pretty much what happened because we don't expect normal voters to be election geeks and understand that until certain heavily Democratic counties come in, like Wayne County or Kalamazoo County in Michigan, um, Ingham County, Lansing, that you don't really have a whole deal. The first half may not look very much like the second half, and often it's the last 10 or 20 percent if it's highly concentrated. And often the urban areas that are popular, population dense and very Democratic uh, don't report as quickly. So that's a long way of saying this election day is really three days long. And here we are on day three, finally getting some clarity, and we're seeing states switch, uh, which is driving electoral college projections that make it highly, highly likely that Joe Biden will be the next president of the United States. As of right now, most of the political world is waiting for the final counts to come in from Pennsylvania, which are a mix of, of early absentee or late absentee, you know, mail-in votes, really, in red counties that still skew pretty blue because the, the Democratic vote has been more mail-in than usual this year and larger. Uh, and final votes, provisional ballots, and all the kind of scraps from some very big blue counties that have not fully reported. I would say the casino of, of sophisticated political observers is about 80% convinced that in the next, you know, five to 12 hours, Joe Biden will get to a strong lead in Pennsylvania, and it's highly networks, uh, highly likely the networks will project him the winner of Pennsylvania, which would also make him the winner in the Electoral College and uh, be treated as president-elect. In Arizona, Biden is ahead. If he can hold it and hold Nevada where he's ahead, he will also win, even without Pennsylvania or Georgia, where there's a similar, though not as muscular as Pennsylvania, late surge by Biden. It is likely, very likely, he will hold Nevada. Um, the votes that are out are Democratic, and uh, uh, things are going to get tighter in Arizona. But the final trench of votes there are going to come from Pima County, Tucson. They're going to come late, but they're going to be at least 9,000 net for Biden. So basically, we're in the last innings of this. And if you don't believe me as a, a guy who predicted that uh, Joe Biden would carry Florida, <laughs> he didn't. I will say that the United States Secret Service has now put an air corridor over Joe Biden's house in Delaware. So they're starting to treat him like president-elect. We just have to wait for the final count and the final announcement. So let's go around the horn and see what people think about that analysis, how likely it is that Biden has actually won this election. And maybe I'll throw in the question. I'll start with you, Jane. What struck people about the pattern of the voting? Jane? Yeah, I agree with that. Hard to disagree with Mike, um, except on Florida and on the USC poll, which I see there are many questions about. We'll get to that. Um, I think the thing that struck me the most about this is how hauntingly familiar these results are in 20 among white female voters. I think Bob Shrum and I had a bet over a nice steak 
that oh, white women. Oh, I knew women, you were going to do this. Yeah, to me. I, I, I decided to bring it up, and because uh, I'm going to cash in on that bet. We had a bet about whether white female voters, when there was quite a lot of um, sentiment out there that white women, particularly those in the suburbs, what were what were they called, the wine moms? They were going to get back at Trump for all the terrible stuff he had done, and flip over to the Democratic side to a decent man like Joe Biden. Well, it turned out not to be the case. And while we can always take exit poll data with uh, you know, a big lump of salt, we nevertheless can see that regardless of which set of data one looks at, white female voters remained supportive of Donald Trump in 2020, even to a larger degree than they were in the last election when Hillary Clinton was at the top of the Democratic ticket. And so I think one of the things that, is, uh, that struck me the most was not only that, but also the other thing, which is uh, the relatively speaking larger support among voters of color, particularly men of color, black men, Latin, Latino males, for the president this time. And we should remember that none of these, whether you're talking about white rural voters or working class voters or voters of color or women voters, None of these are separate electorates in and of themselves. They all exist in, in the larger and the broader political ecosystem with one set of things affecting another. We don't have climate change without a lot of things happening at the same time. We don't have this dynamism in electorates without them affecting, with, without all of the elements of the electorate affected. So I think those are two important um, things that I noticed this time and I think are worth talking about. Mike, uh, where do you think Madrid, where do you think this comes out and what struck you most about the pattern of the voting? Look, I think we'll know in the next five to seven hours that uh, Joe Biden secured the 270 electoral votes required. I think that he will win pretty significantly, at least as the votes lie now in Pennsylvania. I also believe he's going to carry Georgia. He'll carry Arizona and Nevada. We'll see what happens in North Carolina. There's a little bit more votes out there than we thought there were. Um, if you'd asked me yesterday, I would say he wouldn't win North Carolina regardless if he picks up these four outstanding, the four main focus states that we're looking at, he gets to a little bit over 300, 306 votes, something like that. Um, look, I also want to be a little bit cautious on exit polling data, right? What we're seeing, a couple, a couple things that, that jump out. The first is they are exit polls, as, as was just mentioned by Jane. She's absolutely right. But something seems a little bit incongruous when we start saying he won with Hispanic voters, with black voters. He increased his margins. We had an upsurge of non-college educated white males, white women voted the same way. It's like if Donald Trump was winning with all of these voter groups, then, then how, how is it he's going to lose, right? Um, that, that's, I think, mathematically one of the things that gives me some heartburn. That's not to suggest that there has not been problems with the polling. And keep in mind, it's not just the public polling, which needs a, a serious dose of, of methodological introspection, but both the Republican committees as well as the Democratic committees, and a lot of us, us that were involved in this campaign, we're seeing a lot of data that was not as close or refined or as accurate as you would like it to be. Um, but I do want to you know, point out that we have always, always, always lived under the rubric that a high turnout election benefits Democrats. A high turnout election benefits kind of the American left. This flew in the face of that, right? With the probable and possible exception of Donald Trump losing the White House, you did not see the hemorrhaging on the U.S. Senate side that a lot of people were expecting us at the Lincoln Project included. And you also saw the Republicans pick up a couple of a few seats in the House where most prognosticators were suggesting that they could lose between anywhere five to 12 seats. Most, I think the consensus was 10. So 
high turnout election. Never seen, again, this is historically high. You would assume, as we did early on, that this was going to be a bloodletting for the Republican Party. Turned out to be the exact opposite. And so unless there was this kind of, uh, I, I, I don't know how we reconcile the math. If, if there was actually a huge upswing and overrepresentation amongst non-college educated whites that, that Trump was successful in pulling out, people that did not vote in the 2016 elections that decided this was the year they were going to show up, and you saw a historic break amongst African-American males and Latino males and white women moving towards Trump, there's just not enough votes anywhere else to kind of explain the electoral outcome here. Uh, certainly not even state by state, which we were very, very aggressively involved in Florida, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Arizona. So I think we're going to have to just take a deep breath uh, on, on all of the polling data, candidly, but specifically the exit polling, and even more specifically the state by state. Jane, I'll come back to you in one second. I want, I want to get to Adam. I know he's not in the prediction business, but how do you feel about the contours of this election right now? How do the folks who, who you know, Nate Cohen and the folks at the New York Times assess what's happening? A couple of things. First of all, I think the feeling at the paper, all of us watching the race, is that stating the obvious, there's very little road left, very little runway left for the president to win re-election. Is it possible? I suppose. But it's really unlikely. And my best guess right now is that we'll see Pennsylvania come in. And if Pennsylvania comes in the way it's coming in, that we could have a decision on this presidential election tonight. That's the first point. The second point is I agree. I, I, I've been I've been haunted by exit polls as long as I've been writing stories. So I'm really not a big fan of them. But I do think that I think it's interesting that Trump appears to have done better with Latinos, Latino men, black men, what we saw in Florida. I think what's interesting about that is is that a Republican Party thing or a Trump thing? And if I was doing a post analysis of this for the Democratic Party. That's what I would look at. Um, per Mike's point um, on uh, Trump obviously being successful in turning out a lot of new voters, um, which hurt the Democratic Party, it looks like, further down the ballot. You know, all the polling that we're showing shows that, that Biden also turned out a lot of, lot of new voters. I mean, we have a lot of people voting today. And, um, and my, I hate to speculate, my guess is a lot of them voted for Biden and either didn't vote or just voted however they were, or split tickets going down the the, uh, the, the ballot. Um, the one sort of reality check here I would do is, you know, expectations were once again raised so high by polling, and I won't say anything negative about any polls at all, I promise. So that I think the Democrats were expecting this blue wave and Biden to win all these states and the Democrats take over control of the Senate, 10 more seats, state houses. None of that happened or basically didn't happen. But Biden has won what feels to me, if he wins the way it looks, a really substantial victory. Um, it looks like he's in, in position to win by, correct me if I'm wrong, 5 million in the popular vote. That's a lot. And if he wins, as Mike was suggesting, Nevada, which I think he is going to win, Arizona, uh, Pennsylvania, Georgia, um, you know, the blue wall, I, I just would not take away from the significance of that win. I mean, everyone's trying to say, well, this isn't a repudiation of Trump, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, it actually, if he loses, it actually is. He's an incumbent president who put his everything behind this election and lost by a substantial amount. That's just, again, again, with the caveat, we don't at this point that we're talking, we don't know for sure that he that he has lost at all. But that's how it's looking. Shane, you wanted to say something. 
Yeah, I just wanted to reply to some of the comments Mike made about Mike too on math giving you heartburn. It it shouldn't give you heartburn. It's obvious that both of those things can be true at the same time, which is to say that in a turnout, a high turnout election, that you have to remember that conventional wisdom about high turnout being beneficial to Democrats is only right until it's not right anymore. So history is only predictive until it isn't. And in this case, it isn't. And why are the reasons for that? I think the simple explanation is one having to do with two essential dynamics going on. So in other words, why is it that you see higher Republican turnout at the same time you see, as Adam just noted, higher Democratic turnout as well? It's a combination of two things that are happening. One is the reduction in barriers to voting due to COVID, right? So the, the uh, no longer having to go to the, the, the polling place, having a multiple different set of modes by which one can vote. This reduces the barriers for voting for everyone. And if we want to increase voting overall in the United States, if Republicans and Democrats can agree on that, then this is the way to go. Keep these conditions in place. So that is the first externality that makes conventional wisdom incorrect, right? You, you reduce the barriers to voting in terms of administration. You can do your ballot from home. You can mail it and you can drop it off. You can drive through as long as you're not in Texas. The other thing that's going on is a, a, a similar circumstance that affects only Democrats and not Republicans. So to the extent that you believe that voter suppression is, in, is working and is being undertaken, um, and I think there's plenty of documentation that that is. Voter suppression is not directed at Republican locations. It's directed at Democratic locations. So the combination of the reductions and barriers to voting through a variety of modes and voting uh, not in person in combination with Republican voter suppression efforts only to Democratic areas leads to higher turnout among Republicans. I don't think you need heartburn on that because it seems pretty obvious to me. Mike Madrid, you, do you have any comment on Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure what, that wasn't in reference to anything that I was talking about, but uh, look, the question really is not that about, I wasn't talking about voter suppression. I, 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 I'm not sure where that came from. I, I look, what I'm talking about is the math behind, there was a historic turnout amongst all voter groups. The question is, is are you bringing in people that did not vote in the 16 election cycle from a mathematical perspective with non-college educated whites? And were they overperforming based off of everybody else? That's not a question of suppression. It's, again, it's a basic question of, of how you would weight the voter model. So what I'm suggesting here is I, I think that everybody needs to have a very healthy dose of skepticism when looking at exit polls. I mean, you have to look how clearly the, the, the standard polls were not, were not accurate, okay, across the board. Why we would put much more confidence in exit polls, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not buying that, especially, like I said, when you have significant overperformance for Trump in all of these voter groups, and yet he's in all likelihood going to lose the election by a um, historic number, one, popularly, but amongst battleground states like Georgia, um, Arizona, probably, um, and Nevada, it just it just doesn't the the math just doesn't add up the raw vote total the raw vote get that we're talking about with these surge and other voter groups does not add up we're gonna have to wait until the final counts are done do some precinct analysis but i we need to walk very carefully with exit polling data at this point to find out what actually happened just to chime in for a minute because i can't resist a good polling fight and then we can move on the thing to remember is that where exits really have uses after the election when they can be reweighted to reality because then they give you a good idea and there are two questions the exits are going to have to answer 
once they they're not a projection, but they're they're aligned with what we know about who actually showed up and what the actual results were. One, did Trump bring in a lot of new people, or did Biden bring in a lot of new people, and who were those people, and in what ratio? That'll be interesting. And then two, the composition of the electorate. Some of these demographic tabs, like the overperformance with African American men, which you know from the initial data looks pretty true. We just don't know how big and how much and who those voters are. It's kind of curious to me, you know, are, are those new voters? Um, and then I would just caution, there's been a lot of conclusions on the Latino vote in the media, uh, which is kind of the classic anecdotal evidence. So the big obsession is, hey, Biden totally collapsed in Miami-Dade County. Uh, Hillary Clinton carried that Democratic county by 29 points. Barack Obama did not do as well but he still carried it by 23.7% more or less based on the weighted exit polls at the time. Um, You know, uh, Joe Biden's going to be lucky to get to 8% down there. It is such a deviation from the standard norm that it is a really, really rare event. And there's going to have to be a lot of investigation into that. But confusing the Latino politics of Miami-Dade County, where I have 30 years experience, with the Latino politics of uh, the Orlando area, uh, which is basically, basically Puerto Rican voters in the majority versus Los Angeles versus Texas. The Latino world is becoming so big and so politically powerful. There's tremendous diversity within it of opinion in, in addition to voting behavior. So there's a ton of cool stuff we're going to have to dig into and learn there, but we, we just need a little more time. And frankly, we need, we need actual precinct data and, you know, a lot of, a lot of stuff like that to merge in. And then all the questions Jane is talking about are, absolutely where where the election looks to be askew and where all the investigation ought to be. Uh, so since you brought up Florida, I know that you invested a lot of money there for Republican voters against Trump. Mike, you were invested there for the Lincoln Project. So why don't we start with Mike one, Mike Murphy. What happened in Florida? And then we'll go to you, Mike Madrid. Well, Florida kind of became the Stalingrad. Um, between Mike Bloomberg, we, we put about 11 million in there, Bloomberg about 100 million. Uh, there were other independent groups, and it became the expensive fight that drained the money from Trump, who was underfunded at the end. He was beat on television by Biden world every day since um, uh, the conventions, for other reasons that Trump foolishly spent a lot of money. It, it sucked a lot of Trump resources into a final stand. Now, interestingly, most of the places we targeted our spend at, and we were in close communication with the Bloomberg campaign, um, you know, Trump did less well than 16. We, we, we flipped Duval County, Jacksonville. There are all kinds of places that we basically targeted a universe of 750,000 uh, soft suburban Republicans and white independents with a college degree. So we chiseled them in a bunch of those places down where, where Trump did massively better which is why the polling data was often so wrong. One of the reasons, because most of the polls had Florida plus two to four, was in Miami-Dade, where, you know, it wasn't 10% below Hillary. It was basically one-fourth of Hillary, and probably I'd say a little uh, around one, uh, I can say a fourth of Democratic normal. Uh, So that total collapse uh, was clearly painful. Also, some of the super Trump counties like Hernando, uh, north of Tampa, exurban counties were, were, I mean, I'll give you one stat on that because it's kind of a fascinating story of uh, what happened in Florida. And this is where we had a fail. Uh, 
Um, in, a, in the kind of typical Republican number, when Mitt Romney lost the state by 75,000 votes out of over 9 million cast in 2012, Hernando County went Republican as it normally does by 8.4%. Trump superperformed there, winning in 16 by 29%. He actually increased that to 30% in this election. Now, many other places, the more suburban Republican counties, Indian River, he was down one to four points. But, but in the real Trumpy counties, there was no chipping away. Trump did better, and he created a Trumpy county out of Miami. Not just with Cubans, by the way. Venezuelans, I believe, we have to, we have to get into some of the Miami Beach data, but I believe with Jewish voters, um, he had a success kind of across the board with African-American voters. And I think race and gender was a huge factor in much of that. Um, my Miami street guts, I wasn't always delighted when Barack Obama or Kamala Harris went to Dade County. Uh, they're tremendous communicators, but Obama carries the legacy, even though he carried it, not as well as Hillary, but he carried it. Biden had done that well. We might have a different Florida outcome. But he had the legacy of a deal with Cuba that was locally extremely controversial. And I can tell you, in that county, as in many places in America, there is racial tension between the groups. Because uh, Miami is basically composed of Jewish Americans, um, WASP Republicans, Cubans, Venezuelans, Nicaraguans, Haitians, and, and African Americans. So each group often has a beef against the other in Miami. It's kind of like old school Chicago ward politics in some ways with, with a new twist. And the Biden campaign clearly kind of miscalculated there. And um, the Trump campaign put a huge effort in there and it proved to be remarkably successful. So I would say it was a combination of Trump's great county staying with him, the suburbs going down a little bit, like uh, where we worked a lot was in the west side and Hillsborough Pinellas. Uh, We're able to flip Pinellas just narrowly from Trump back to Biden. But South Florida and parts of Orlando, uh, which need need a look. Um, Trump not only did as well as he did last time, he did a little better. And it, it, it was definitely enough to do it for him. Mike Madrid, what, you were deeply involved in this too. What you agree with Mike's analysis? Yeah. Yeah, we, we handled it tactically a little bit differently, but everything he was saying was 100% correct, at least from our perspective. We agree with everything that they were doing. Look, the, the linchpin of what the Lincoln Project was, was looking for in election night was really a four-state strategy. North Carolina, Florida, Pennsylvania, and Arizona. We adjusted to a fifth, I'll get to in a second, because we started to see things that we, we weren't real. We, 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 we needed to change tactics about six weeks out. Florida is Florida, right? I think Mike Murphy and I met 100 years ago doing work for, for Jeb Bush back then. And the first conversation we had about was just how Florida, Florida is. That was 25 years ago. It's becoming, it's becoming even more, you know, peculiar. But the way, the, the, way the, 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 the race was stacking up in that state was you had a Republican who was overperforming with core Democratic constituency with Latinos, right? Hispanics specifically. It wasn't just Cubans, as Mike said. But he was actually making some inroads into the I-4 corridor with Puerto Ricans. So that's kind of an anomaly, right? You've got a Republican overperforming considerably with a key base Democratic constituency, Cuban though it may be largely. Biden was doing really well with seniors, 65-plus voters, and cutting into and eating into Republican vote share there. So you have the Republican doing well with Democrats, Democrat doing well with Republicans. 
we saw it kind of as a war of attrition here. Let's fight this out. There's more senior 65 plus that we can get than worry about the, demo, the Hispanic de, uh, demography there. We saw RVAC come in big. They were doing all the right things. We saw Bloomberg starts to move in and we realized maybe we don't double down here uh, because it is such a variable. Let's move some of these resources up into Pennsylvania. So we doubled down in Pennsylvania. We went into the T, uh, which is kind of the more conservative areas of the states in order to mitigate what we called deep MAGA counties, right? What we're trying to do is peel off marginal amounts like Luzerne County to kind of mitigate, to mitigate how, how strongly the Trump uh, increase in vote would, would, would perform. We also pulled out after the mail program of North Carolina. Uh, we, the reason why we were in North Carolina and Florida so early, by the way, is because we knew that they're early count states, and we wanted in part to try to mitigate uh, any sort of possibilities of civil unrest afterwards. If we had an early count and a clear choice on either of these three, either of those two states, the hope was you could prevent him from declaring victory as he did yesterday by making a clear, decisive win more, more likely and more, more probable. Uh, what we did there is we moved those resources into Georgia. Uh, so Georgia came into play, and at that point, we realized we'd done all the work we could with North Carolina voting. There's still ballots out in North Carolina. There's still a mathematical opportunity there, but we committed everything back into Georgia. So Florida became this variable that we were not uh, – we were there. We kept our spend up. We did not augment it. We did not increase it. We saw an expanding map, and we kind of pursued that opportunity then. I want to go around the horn on another question. I want to shift away from where we are right now. Uh, as the counting goes on, and Adam, unmute yourself, please. As the counting goes on, uh, the Trump campaign is starting to file different legal challenges all over the country. The president is saying, stop the counting in some places and finish the counting in other places. Is this all just noise, or are we likely to get in to some kind of Bush v. Gore situation? Adam? If we end up having a situation where Biden wins Pennsylvania, Georgia, Nevada, Arizona, I don't think so, because there won't be one kind of battleground. And from just a very logical position, even if, even if say, Trump was to successfully overturn the event, overturn the outcome in Nevada or Arizona, I'm just throwing out hypothetical states, it wouldn't change the election. So I don't, I don't see that kind of situation. He needed it or needs it to come down to a big, big fight in one state. Um, and he needs it to come down to a big fight in one state that he that is very close. And one of the things that I think Democrats were very consciously trying to do was to win these states by a big enough margin. There's a certain point where you just can't go into court and get an election overturned, right? Like Florida was, what, 547 votes? I forget what the number was now, but it was small. 537 votes with... 15 to 25,000 never counted at all. Okay, so that's, you know, you can do that, right? I'm not saying the Supreme Court did the right thing. But if you win, say, I forget the latest numbers in Michigan, 200,000 or something, there's no court case that's going to turn around. So my sort of gut is what's going on here is the president is extremely frustrated and is watching what he thinks is his re-election fade away and is saying, go sue them, right? And instructing his lawyers to go out the file suits here, here, and here. And I just, you know, I just don't take that very seriously. And at a certain point, I mean, this will get a little complicated, but at a certain point, and maybe as soon as tonight, you're going to have major media declaring the president, excuse me, declaring Joe Biden the next president of the United States. 
what happens then? I mean, Trump can keep fighting in the courts, but at a certain point, it begins it becomes just a lost cause. The thing with Florida, right, was that from the very beginning, and again, I'm not talking about the merits of the argument or, for that matter, the way that uh, I was at the Clinton people, the Gore people handled the politics of it. You know, there was a contested fight. There were issues there. There was a disputed a dispute account. And I just don't see that happening in any in enough states by enough of a margin, a small margin, to give um, Bush a, mar- a road to go there. The, the last thing I would say, stating the obvious, is what do other Republicans in power do if and when we reach that situation? What does Mitch McConnell do? What does, I mean, Kevin McCarthy, I suppose, do? I'm not even going to ask about uh, Lindsey Graham. I don't, I don't think I care. But, you know, there's a certain point, there's a certain point where, you know, are they going to say to the president, is this isn't working? I was struck, by the way, I don't know how many of you saw the president's speech from the East Room on uh, Wednesday morning where he called the election a fraud and we're going to the Supreme Court. You know, I did see Republicans come out, Chris Christie being one, and kind of scold him for doing that and saying at the very least it wasn't a good political strategy or a good legal strategy. And that might be it. I've learned not to predict what Republicans are going to do with Trump, but that might be a hint of where we're going to be 24 hours from now. Yeah. Uh, anybody disagree with that? Well, I disagree a little bit, but go ahead. Maybe somebody else does. No, go ahead. Yeah, I'll just say most of the lawsuits are frivolous. I totally agree with that. And they won't have standing and they're Trump just doing lawyer therapy. You know, there there are some issues around the Pennsylvania absentee ballot law because it was done hurriedly and sloppily. Um, there, and there's really behind that is even the, the real fight is between the state Supreme Court and the legislature, which is Republican, over who really can control this stuff. So, you know, it's kind of academically interesting lawyer stuff, but I doubt it'll be material, you know, to the, to, to the actual outcome of the election because it just doesn't have enough standing to get an injunction other than there are some ballots in Pennsylvania that you are unable to put a postmark on for their clock law of three days. So, you know, there's this kind of, it's like, like the uh, New Guinea battle of World War II. It's not going to change the tide, but there are people there in a, in, in a real battle that at least election lawyers will look at. So, and the other thing I'll just quickly, uh, Lindsey Graham's an old friend of mine. I am brokenhearted at how he's become a Trump sycophant. But to be fair, having had the whole world come at him, you know, he's going to win that thing by 11 points. So just for political skills and tenacity, I have to give him a salute as much as I'm disappointed with his, uh, his Trump decisions, which I, I think have been hypocritical and depressing. I think that's fair, Mike. But the two points that I make is I don't think that Lindsey Graham was that. That, that to me is a classic example of the left and liberals going, oh, my God, we're going to win beat Lindsey Graham yeah it's just, yeah it's exaggerated hopes 11 points is a lot I take nothing away from his political skills I'm sorry nothing away from his political skills um but I understand your second point I just the point I was trying to make on I think you're saying the same thing on Pennsylvania and the law I'm not I'm not saying there's not legitimate legal issues there for the you know election lawyers but I think that and we'll need to see what the margin is if Biden wins I just don't see it my guess is it won't be material to the outcome of that race. Yeah, yeah. I agree. The last saying. legal thing, really quickly, I, I totally yeah. agree, Adam, is this Georgia thing. If, if you are just tired of the fatigue of this election, pray for Pennsylvania and Arizona as is highly likely to land with Biden. 
because Georgia is going to get very close, which means we're going to be in the world of provisional ballots, which are a nightmare. And those are open to, you have two lawyers looking at signatures, magnifying glass. It is a nightmare. We really don't on cable TV want to put the country through a provisional fight because it comes down to 2,000 votes either way in Georgia. That can happen quietly for a real count, as it should, after, you know, the election is decided. But to come down to that will make Florida 2000 look like uh, Candyland. The Biden people had a very, very deliberate strategy beforehand to try to avoid that kind of scenario, both because it would make us all sort of crazy and also be bad for the country. Right? Just in other words, to win enough that you didn't right. have that kind of situation and win enough in enough states. And Mike, you think that's unlikely? Oh, I think Georgia may wind up in provisionals indeed. I think it could be. No, no, but you think that's way. unlikely to be the election determinant. I think right now Arizona is going to lock it for Biden. I have no worries about Nevada. And I think the odds of Pennsylvania are definitely better than, than probably three to two that, that Biden's going to prevail in Pennsylvania. So Georgia will become irrelevant other than for statistical and bragging rights. So it won't be on, you know, we won't have a circus. Before we go to audience questions and Mike is going to ask them, I want to bring up something Jane brought up at the very beginning of this. And that is the apparent polling miss, which was at least comparable to 2016. Our own USC Dornsife Daybreak poll had a 10-point final margin for Biden. We did have an experimental question we were asking, which is, who do you think in your social circle people are going to vote for? And there, Biden was ahead by about 4.1, less than half of what he was ahead of when we asked the question straight up. Uh, and that may not, the 4.1 may actually be pretty close to the, to the final margin in the popular vote. Uh, and that would be bigger, by the way, than Barack Obama's margin in the popular vote in, in 2012. And I'll start with you, Jane, and then we're going to go to audience questions after we go through this polling question. What about the polls? What happened here? Well, a lot of wrong happened, obviously. I don't think that it's a question of necessarily asking it the wrong way or the shy Trump voter. I think it has everything to do with what uh, Mike Madrid was talking about and also uh, Mike Murphy as well. And that is, I think you guys got the turnout model all wrong. I think that you went with the idea that Democrats were going to come out because they were energized. So as I'm not sure how many of the viewers understand this, but just because you ask questions and you get responses to those questions, nobody releases uh, a horse race poll without creating a turnout model. And that simply says we take these data and we weight them in such a way that we think the composition of the people inside the poll will match the electorate that we predict will be that who shows up or who has a ballot cast on the day. So the same errors that were made in all of the run-up and thinking that Dems were going to show up at a much greater rate than Republicans did, um, I think that is the source, the same source of the error for the polls. And so just so you know, once you're, when you're asking questions, you can ask them in a lot of different ways. So the simple answer would be, oh, do the experimental question which I think is too simplistic of an answer. I think you should always be looking for new methodologies for measuring what people say they're going to do. But where I think the significant error happened across the board is that the turnout models were wrong. You overestimated the number of Dems and underestimated the number of uh, Republicans. Uh, Mike Murphy, Mike Madrid, and then Adam, and we'll go to questions. Oh, well, you know, Jane and I are always going to be arguing about polling data, but I don't know till the exits are weighted to reality. I think there are a couple of problems. You know, a friend of mine who's an academic PhD and a Republican uh, pollster of great accuracy 
uh, is very curious about this question too, because the good pollsters all know there's a problem. And it was interesting. He was doing polling in Colorado, many states, but of both initiatives and Trump versus um, uh, Biden. And on the, during the same week, two different studies conducted, the initiative polling was dead on accurate. The candidate polling was all wrong, which means part of the equation here is in, in the polling world, it is kind of assumed that people are going to tell you the truth more or less on a poll. And you try to backstop that by asking questions about their opinion on certain issues that highly correlate to one side or another. So when they say undecided or refuse, you can say, yeah, the refusers are, you know, pro-Second Amendment two to one. That's a Republican correlation. You start trying to guess. You don't know. So there's, there, I think there's a pretty big delta between issue polling and candidate polling, which could be part of our tribalism. So you don't know if people are telling the truth. You don't know who the new voters are. Um, whether it was a Republican surge or more white independents decided to vote for Trump than, than the polls projected. Because there were, you know, there was, there was definitely a lot of everybody voting. I'm not sure the Republican surge was turnout material as much as choice. Uh, and, you know, we just need to, we'll find out. It's an answerable question over time. But there's no doubt that the old model of polling, which was to wait results to history, in the Trump era has proven to be a mistake because the Trump era is different than the old historical revert to mean that frankly worked really well for a long time, but now it's not working. Mike Madrid, what do we need to do to fix the polling? Yeah, look, I think what both Jane and Mike are saying is accurate. Um, having said that, well, look, this discussion began in earnest and after the 2016, uh, you know, problems, and most of, there was a lot made about adjusting the weighting to overcompensate for non-college educated whites going into 2020. So there actually was a lot of debate as to whether or not we were overweighting and oversampling the Trump vote. So that, that begs the next question is, did, we, did, did the non-college educated white Trump base show up in these astronomical numbers that even the best weighting that almost all the public polls adjusted for still undercount the vote. I think that's extremely unlikely, okay? It also doesn't explain the outcome that, as we're, we're likely to see in the, in the election. It's kind of to my earlier point. That doesn't, that doesn't, it cannot be answered by weighting alone, although that is clearly a part of the problem, which gets into what Mike is saying, is something is fundamentally wrong with the methodology of how we are talking to people. Perhaps it is just a Trump phenomenon. I don't think it is. I think it's much more significant and of much greater consequence. But the way we were polling and the fundamentals of polling techniques, um, you know, are going to have to take a real deep look. And again, it's important to remember, this wasn't just the public polls. This wasn't just academic institutions. It wasn't just newspapers and, and, and media. It was the internal polls on both sides of the partisan divide were saying the same thing. So there's something fundamentally wrong about the methodological approach of the way we are doing public opinion polling that needs to be reexamined. Okay, Adam, the New York Times did a lot of polls with Siena, and they 538 rated them A+, the highest rating of any polls in the country. Is the paper going to have to rethink this whole process of polling? I'm going to ask you as myself as opposed to, I'm not Dean Beckham or A.G. Salzberger or Patrick Healy, but in my opinion, we do. I said the same thing in 2016, and I was about to kind of answer this question kind of the same way, which is, 
I mean, I think all you guys said really smart stuff, Jane, in particular, on what the problem is with the polls. But I just think that we all rely too much on horse race polls. And um, it makes us very vulnerable to the perception, and I would stress the perception, that we, quote, unquote, got it wrong. Because I don't think the reporters covering the campaign, Jonathan Martin, Patrick Healy, Aston Hurdy, all of them, got it wrong. I mean, I think the polls were really off and I don't know how to get around that except to pay less attention to them and to let them drive your coverage less. I think we were much better at that than we were in 2016. But Bob, I'll be, I'll be frank with you. I feel we had this discussion, not you and me, but the sort of industry in 2016. And of course we're, you know, we were relying on polls just as much. And, you know, I'll bet you that same steak dinner that in 2024, we'll be relying on them again and we'll try to fix them. I do think we made some improvements. And this might be getting too much into the journalistic weeds here. We we didn't have the national needle on our homepage the whole night. But we did have three needles for Georgia, North Carolina, and I, I picked the Thursday, Florida. Um, but we kind of moved away from that. And I think we were much more careful about, you know, caveating stuff. But listen, it's a problem. And I think that, um, and again, this is not what you guys want to talk about. At a time when there's been a drop in the trust of major news organizations, including the Times, New York Times, and that that's been um, encouraged by President Trump for obvious reasons, it's not helpful for people to wake up and go, oh, my God, how did Lindsey Graham win by 11 points? I thought I read you know, that he was going to win by he's gonna, he was in a deadlock situation or how did Florida end up going to Trump? I mean, I just, with all these, as I'm covering stuff towards the end, I'm keeping an eye on polls. I'm, I'm as much a junkie as everyone, anyone else, but I'm just really skeptical. So I was never, by the way, on the last point, I'll be really quick here. I, I always kind of figured that Biden was going to lose Florida because that's what always happens in Florida. Not always, but usually. And I thought the strategy here on the part, uh, on the part of Mike Madrid, Lincoln Project, on the part of, of Bloomberg, was just to spend a lot of money there to get Trump to spend a lot of money there, so he wasn't spending money in the states that he appears to have lost. That if your if your if your agenda here was to defeat Trump, well, I mean you lost Florida, but you might have won the war. So, uh, so I want to move on to questions, and we're going to go. We started five minutes late, so we'll go five minutes past the hour. Mike, you want to do the questions, and then at the end, throw it back to me. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the uh, the old polling guard was part of the, the strategy, though we were also, we were the fourth largest spender in digital, including the two campaigns in Pennsylvania. So we played multiple states, but we really wanted to pull the bullets into Florida. And we, th- we did think we had a chance to get them. First of all, I have to do our commercial. Don't forget to support USC and the Center for the Political Future by joining our center leadership circles. Your donations fund scholarships, events, student jobs, and so many programs designed to help Trojans uh, promote civil discourse and, we hope, help save democracy. You can go on our website, Center for for the Political Future, and look at the center leadership circles. Adam, I'm sending you a brochure. All right. This is from, oh, Anonymous. Why do they hate me? Why did I lose? All right. Sorry. Wrong wrong Anonymous. Anonymous, has Trump fundamentally changed the Republican Party that going forward, Trumpism is going to be the norm? Not seeing how traditional conservative values, free markets, lower taxes, welfare reform will be attractive to Trump's base, will still be attractive to Trump's base from Republican politicians. I actually disagree with it. I think there's going to be a reformation because losing doesn't pay. But the conventional wisdom, it'll be Trumpy as hell forever. We're going to see. 
I predict civil war in the party of which Trumpism will be one of the many warlords running around as we we figure out what a Republican is out of the ashes. But who else wants to address that? Mike, who would be, because I was going to go CW, sorry about that. Who do you think <laughs> would be leading the war on the other side? And it was to me, I always thought, we're now going to have a greatly shrunken, not greatly shrunken, reduced Republican Party. Trump is probably going to run again. If he loses in 2024, I'm having trouble seeing how it won't be a Trumpian Republican Party for at least four years. But show me who would lead the way. I mean, I guess not Lindsey well, Graham. Well, it, it is close enough, and the legislative success was enough. The Democrats mm-hmm. not winning the Senate, et cetera, et cetera, though we have Georgia runoffs now to probably finally litigate that in January, two of them. Um, it would have been more clear. Now, Trump is they're already talking today about the Trump second-term you know, campaign committee that he runs again. I think mm-hmm. a lot of energy will go out of that over time. There are Trump yeah. children. So there will be a Trump factor. You're also going to see the hybrids, Senator Josh Hawley, uh, Tom Cotton, who are going to kind of do the Trump populism with a little less, you know, crudity. Then you're going to find kind of the reform conservative types. Uh, Marco Rubio will re-evolve into what he used to be. There will be others like that. You're going to see new stars like Dan Crenshaw, who at heart is less Trumpy than he, he was now. He's surviving Texas Republican politics, who's going to be a big star in the party. You're going to have governors who say pox on Washington. Nikki Haley will reinvent herself for the third time. So I think the different polls, the vacuum will be filled, and it'll be both the opposition to Biden for two years and the midterm elections that'll that'll be the stage upon which this battle is kind of fought. And I'm not predicting an outcome, but I just don't believe we're going to be in an Orwellian world of dear leader Trump having a total grip on the party like he did last time. There were three months from Sarah Palin controlled the Republican Party. Today, you can hire it open a shopping center for $500. So, you know, I just, I don't believe in the rearview mirror theory of constant politics, but there's no doubt that race-tinged populism that is an anathema to a lot of traditional conservative small L liberal values uh, is, is here to stay. But I, 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 I'm unconvinced it, it, it is the majority opinion of all primary voters, and I'm unconvinced that it, it'll have the same grip on the politicians, fearing the cult of personality of Trump more than the Trump ideology. And we're just going to have to fight it out and find out. Yeah, if I, if I could jump in here, I, you know, I, I disagree with Mike on this probably entirely. I guess I'm more of the conventional wisdom type. I do believe in rearview uh, mirror politics when you're driving backwards. And I think that that's what the Republican Party is doing. I don't believe in the, the, the remarkable stickiness through all of the research that we were finding with Republicans. It is a fundamentally different party than it was 10, 15 years ago, profoundly. And I think actually Mike, Mike actually made the case for that. He's talking about slightly different variations amongst 80, 85% of the party with one sort of caveat, which I think makes the case further, which is it's centered around sort of a white identity grievance politics. I believe what is happening as the white share of the electorate is shrinking, the Republican Party has become home to white grievance politics in the same way it castigates the Democratic Party and the American left of being practitioners of identity politics. The truth is the Republican Party is the largest practitioner of identity politics. It's just white identity politics, so it doesn't see it as a problematic, right? It doesn't identify it that way. But that will be a central, central feature of the Republican Party as the demography of the Republican Party shrinks into more regional spaces where it can actually be relevant 
It will become more monolithic. It will become more extreme. It will become more vocal. Let's be mindful there's going to be a QAnon caucus in the new House of House of uh, Representatives with nine at least, probably more, adherence to some form of QAnon philosophy in the Republican Party. This is, this is not a small fringe element anymore of the Republican Party. There, a lot of polling suggests that there's upwards of 40% of Republicans have some adherence to QAnon philosophy and the beliefs of what is being promulgated. Um, this is growing. It is not shrinking, and it will ultimately, I think it already has consumed the party, but if it has not yet, it will very shortly. Okay, I want to comment. I'm not going to use war metaphors, but I will say, and I'm not a practitioner, I'm a scholar, and I, would, I want to look at this in a slightly different way. I don't think that this is a, and I'm not sure whose side I'm on here. Um, I think you've all made good points, but I think in some fundamental way, this is not a profoundly different party that the Republican Party has always been the party of white heteropatriarchy. And the difference is that the context has changed. The party has changed since, let's say, Nixon or when Reagan gives his states' rights speech in Philadelphia, Mississippi. That was no, you guys maybe know, that was no accident that he gave the speech there. It was quite clear what he was saying and to whom he was saying it. So the Republican Party has for a very long time, since the civil rights era, been the party of white supremacy and male supremacy. So taken together, it's always just gone unstated. It didn't have to be openly stated. But now that times have changed, the population looks the way that it does. As Mike described, there is this period of, you could argue that it's grievance. Prior to that, it was simple, plain up dominance. And now that it needs to be stated, it's being stated. And the one thing that I want to observe here is just let's look at this election. You could argue that these are weird ones. You know, these are outliers in some way, but they are the two most recent elections that we've had, 16 and 20. And you do not see a diminution in party loyalty. So if we're having a realignment, it's in a weird way, isn't it? Because what these voters are saying is that they agree with women voters, uh, other voters outside of the traditional Republican Party are saying that they like this uh, kind of, muscular restatement of white heteropatriarchy. White heteropatriarchy. I think that's what you're seeing. And so to the extent, I don't know that, that things like, you know, traditional uh, fiscal conservatism and, you know, anti-communism have disappeared. Those are two bizarre things that happened in the Trump administration. But the bottom line is that this party, the Republican, modern Republican party has always been about white supremacy and male supremacy. And things are beginning to change. Let's not forget, people, almost 54% of the American electorate are female voters, and that has been the case since the 1960s. It's not been the case that, that men have been prevalent. It's only the Republican Party where it is the case that men lead the Republican Party to a larger degree than the Democratic Party. But when you look at the composition of the Republican Party, it is more consistently full of women than it is men. Women always take the edge over men. And the question here is, why do they do it? They decide that they're going to say, I'm going to stay first in race. You can put me second in in gender, but keep me first in race. As long as that dynamic continues, the Republican Party will remain the same. So I suspect the two mics disagree with that, at least with the history of it. But unless you feel compelled to talk about it, I'd like to see if we can squeeze in another two or three questions. Sure. Question from Craig Nicholas. Is the huge polling miss a Trump phenomena again, or is Nate Silver going to be as accurate as a blind monkey in the future? If so, how would future candidates like Gina Raimondo, this must be a Hacksaw Tap listener, know where 
to spend money or make strategy decisions without accurate polling. Um, gut instinct or bad data? No, data will improve. Data is always important. But what data is bad at is what most casual readers want, which is a magic eight ball to predict the election so they don't have to worry about who's going to win. And it helps the press sort out who to pay attention to. And those are two bad instincts, both among voters and among the media. But others, who wants to talk about that, the future? If I could jump in here, just because I think we were doing some profoundly different things with the Lincoln Project. The way most political action committees work is they have some consultants get together. They say, we want to solve a problem. They raise some money. They go out and poll and do a bunch of focus groups, and they come up with a working theory, and they cut some ad creative content, some online ads, maybe direct mail, radio. They go after it, and then they raise some more money to check and poll and see whether or not it worked. What we did was something profoundly different is we were creating content, most of which we were, you know, most professionals were very critical of us saying this is, this is not moving the Republican voter, voter base, which they're absolutely right. That's not what we were trying to do. But what we had was an inventory of hundreds and hundreds of ads that we could actually use analytical work. We would run these online to get real-time feedback to understand which was going to work with which demographics. So we actually did very little polling until the end when we were doing uh, you know, you know, going in and looking at states where we had already committed to based off of the analytical work that we'd done, where we knew quantifiably people were actually responding uh, to the behavior, their behaviors were changing when we, when we would run these ads. Then we would kind of do a traditional polling check. And I think that that's the way, that's the way I think political action committees will, will work, if not entirely, at least part of what they do, because frankly, it just makes more sense. You can move smaller slivers of voters um, you wouldn't do a baseline poll, or if you, you would, the data that you would probably get on Latino, Republican, U.S.-born, Hispanic males under 40 in southwestern states, I mean, it, just, it doesn't make sense to do traditional polling. It's too expensive. The data you would get back wouldn't make sense, but it makes complete sense to do this analytically online. And I think that that's why we were able to uh, make some of the incursions that we were able to. Yeah, but how did you measure movement, clicks? That, that's what I don't understand. How do you how do you measure opinion changing w- without polling people? Even if you do it online, if you're asking them thermometers and stuff. Well, what we know is that there's a stickiness to it, right? You're looking clicks is one that absolutely is a metric. The amount of time that they're spending and engaging and responding, and then conversions, which is the ultimate test. It's a lot better than saying yes or no on the 18th question of a standard, you know. But conversion to what? A conversion to track action, an absentee action. ballot. Jack, oh, yeah, in some cases, yeah, or simply volunteering or following to get more data, right? If you're getting higher conversion rates, it's telling you that the, 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 uh, the messaging or communication strategy is more compelling than not. Yeah, I think that the danger of that, uh, there were different philosophies at work here, it's an interesting discussion, is that you can fall into a trap of pleasing voters you already have. Yeah. And that's, that's, the, that's the cliff you've got to not fall off, because otherwise you know, you get people already there to be happier, but that doesn't always move the needle on the lever. What, a that's lot what, of it is trying what, to convert, you yeah. know, 7 or 8% of the election. That's why the conversion is so important. It's what you're converting them to do, as well as profiling them. That's exactly right. Uh, Mike, do we have time for one more question? I think we do. We're going to fit in a final one. I'm trying to find, uh, well, first a plug. We're going to have our post-election conference Friday, November 13th, from 10 to 4 p.m., uh, Professor June will be here, Adam DeGurney, Mike Madrid, myself, Bob, James Carville, Carl Rove, superstar Jeff Flake, 
Stephanie Cutter, who ran that great Democratic convention, and uh, and many more. So check out the website. It's nothing you're going to want to miss. Um, last question from Krishna Nayak. How do you think the, quote, style of campaign, especially the final push impacted things? And th- this is a big question. I got it last night at a Silicon Valley thing. With GOP holding in-person rallies and all that flushing and canvassing, and possibly, you know, going door to door versus the Biden campaign prioritizing COVID-19 safety and not doing some of those activities. And I think her real question is, was that a material difference? Did it drive a different outcome? Because it was a very different, different set of tactics between the two campaigns. I just think, I think it made a difference in Florida. Particularly in the Cuban community, which is dense and geographically concentrated. I think, listen, we know, you know, voters want to be asked to vote. And I think that Jane, that's a good point about Florida. I think in general, Trump's rallies help turn out his base. And my non-scientific guess is that's one of the reasons why Democrats suffered down the ballot. But, you know, it was going, what, Trump, what Biden did, I think, was part of a meta strategy on this to say that we think COVID is a big deal. And, um, you know, whether it was cutting back his own campaign strategy, not sending people door to door, was saying the message it was the opposite of Trump's message that we think this is something that the country needs to deal with. Um, you know, we could sit here and go, well, it was a mistake and Trump did his rallies and like all these people out. Hey, Biden beat him by 5 million votes. So like, we don't really know that, do we? And I'm assuming, I guess I should say, I'm kind of praying that this is a one-off, that we won't have another campaign in any of our lifetime where there's a pandemic going on. So we won't know again, but you know, I get, I understand the strategy and they both had, this is part of a bigger thing here. They both had very, very different approaches to COVID and the door-to-door stuff was part of it. Trump saying don't wear a mask was part of it. Trump holding these rallies was part of it. Um, you know, I think that it helped Trump get some of his people out. But I think at the end of the day, that is one of the reasons why Biden won. Okay, I think we're going to come to the conclusion of this. Hope to see you on November 13th. Once again, our Warshaw Conference will take place all day from 10 to 4 in partnership with the Rancho Mirage Writers Festival. I want to thank all of you for showing up for this series. Uh, and I want to thank our panelists, Jane Jun, Mike Madrid, Adam Nagurney, and all the staff at the Center for the Political Future that worked so hard to make this work, and also USC Dornsife Technical Services. Thanks, everyone. See you in a little over a week. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on Election R&D. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. 